everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand-selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Okay, so now we're jumping into the principle of timelessness. And to get us starting here, I'll read a quote from Ray's book. Ray writes, quote, With time and experience, I came to see each encounter as another one of those that I could approach more calmly and analytically, like a biologist might approach an encounter with a threatening creature in the jungle, first identifying its species and then drawing on his prior knowledge about its expected behaviors, reacting appropriately, unquote. So, you know, Bitcoin is often called digital gold, and I think it's that name is apt and it's for good reason and that it's basically the best analogy best analogy for bitcoin's emergence is the path that gold followed in its monetization um so it was you know as we've touched on earlier it was the supply of gold being supremely inelastic which is to say hard to change relative to all other monetary metals that's the reason it actually outcompeted the other monetary metals as a superior store of value. And it's the reason it became dominant on the free market prior to central bank commandeering gold, as we've described earlier, and implementing fiat currency on top of it. So it was this long sequence of entrepreneurial trial and error that was promoting gold as the best medium for storing economic value across time because it was the asset that was essentially least plunderable. You can think about it as having like the lowest attack surface. Um, we know with gold, again, has an inelastic supply. So no matter how much we tried to expand its supply, it responded the least. So that is to say it had a lot of inflation resistance, supply inflation resistance. That's one attack vector, right? You can't inflate the supply of gold on me to take my wealth. So that means gold had a small attack surface in that sense. But it also has a really high value to weight ratio. So a small amount, a small volume of gold could contain a tremendous amount of economic value. So this made it much more uh, 
inexpensive to guard, right? Even though you still had to physically custody and safeguard gold, you could do it, you could contain a lot of economic value in a small space. So when you combine these things together, which is gold's resistance to inflation and its very high value to rate weight ratio, what you have is a monetary technology with a very low attack surface. So that's what, again, that's why it was favored by entrepreneurs across history, because it was the most trust minimized medium for storing and transacting economic value. And the ascent of gold as money is rooted in the timeless economic principles that have been discovered and elaborated by the Austrian School of Economics. Um, and this obviously is in direct contrast to things we see circulating today in the post-1971 world, like modern monetary theory, uh, Keynesianism, etc. Um, you know, you could trace these quotes all the way back. There's a quote by J.P. Morgan in 1912 when he was giving a testimony to Congress. And he said that gold is money, everything else is credit. Um, and there's another quote by Thomas Jefferson that said, paper is poverty. It is only the ghost of money and not the money itself. And even Mr. Ray Dalio has a quote along the same lines. Uh, and he says that if you don't own gold, you know neither history nor economics. And so what, what all these three of these quotes have in common is that, well, quite simply, on the free market, right, on uh, through a sequence of voluntary exchange between consensually acting entrepreneurs across time, a fiat currency has never emerged. There's never been someone who consensually decided to start using a fiat currency it's always come about through the compulsion associate, associated with the central bank legal monopoly. So it's not possible to have this implementation of money that we have in the world today without a legal monopoly, which is premised on coercion and compulsion, right? There's, there are insiders that are allowed to print money and outsiders that are forced to use it. Uh, and you just can't get around that. So, I guess that's to say that the state has had no hand in the development of money, right? This is a naturally emergent economic phenomena, but the state as the monopoly on force and violence has always used its position to monopolize money. And we see this in various societies across time. Um, and they've always used that power to monopolize the money, debase it, to enrich insiders at the expense of outsiders. Um, and it's it's led us down paths of self-destruction many, many, many times. And indeed, we're living through it today, uh, once again, here in the early 21st century. So, and I'll, I'll jump into a couple of concepts here that come out of the Bitcoin standard. Um, you know, he describes that gold became a market dominant money because it had a superior stock to flow ratio. Uh, this is something we've talked about before, but it's another way of saying that it was gold was the most resistant asset to inflation effectively. Now, you know, when Ray was talking earlier about uh, learning to see reality as another one of those, right? You're identifying these perennial patterns and then using them to look forward in time. 
uh, at least directionally. Obviously, you can't predict the future, but you can get an idea of which way things will go. You could kind of, and again, this is elaborated in Safety's book, The Bitcoin Standard, but you could kind of look at Bitcoin as a digital gold, as being another one of those, right? It's it's an asset that has a stock to flow ratio that increases, uh, doubles every four years with every halving and actually approaches infinity when the last Bitcoin is mined. And so the thesis of Bitcoiners is that basically Bitcoin's following the same monetization path that gold did. And you can discern somewhat where it is along that path based on its stock to flow ratio. So, you know, historically, gold has had a stock to ratio in the ballpark of 55 or 60, which is to say its supply inflates at about one and a half or 2% per year. Uh, another way to think of the stock to flow ratio is just as an, as an inverse of the inflation rate. So if your inflation rate is 2%, you do one divided by 2% is 50. Uh, your stock to flow ratio would be 50. So gold was the best thing we ever had historically. Again, it's around 55 or 60. In the current Bitcoin having epoch, which we're between the year 20 and 2024 right now, Bitcoin stock to flow ratio is around the same thing. It's around 55 or 60, about equal to gold. Um, obviously increasing incrementally with each block that's mined every 10 minutes, but then it jumps by double at each having. So by mid 2024, we're going to have for the first time in human history, a monetary technology with a stock to flow ratio double to what golds is. So that will be totally uncharted territory. Um, and basically the, the thought is this, that you have this monetary technology with an ever constricting new supply flow. So the, the new issuance of Bitcoin is dwindling over time. And this incentivizes people first to accumulate it as a store of value. So relative to other monies that have new issuance rates that are expanding or accelerating, as we see in the US dollar and all of the fiat currencies, uh, this as a competitive monetary technology is actually doing the opposite, right? It's, it's new, new supply flow or issuance is contracting. So when you denominate the latter in terms of the former, right? Bitcoin in terms of dollars. This is the magic of number go up technology as Bitcoiners describe. It's just you're denominating one form of money um, that has a supply that's expanding rapidly and another form of money that has a supply that's constricting. And so <clears throat> the first function that Bitcoin has adopted for is as a store of value, right? It's as a hedge against that inflation or that counterfeiting of currency. And it's, and this is kind of intuitive, like only after it has a stored enough value or accumulated enough purchasing power is Bitcoin started, do, bit, do people start to use Bitcoin as a medium of exchange? Obviously the thing needs to store purchasing power over time before it becomes useful for transacting. Um, now this is not a bright line transition. It's not like it goes from store value then to medium of exchange. This happens incrementally at the individual level, such that each person that adopted Bitcoin earlier, right, at a lower price point, they have a larger and larger incentive in terms of the unrealized gain imputed in their position to spend. So if you bought Bitcoin at a dollar, you have a big incentive to spend it when it's priced at $100 and a staggering incentive to spend it when it's priced at 1000 
And the guy that bought it at 10 has a large you know, trend, uh, incentive to spend at 1,000 and a gigantic incentive to spend at 10,000, so on and so forth. So as people um, buy Bitcoin or adopt Bitcoin for whatever reason as a savings medium, they see their purchasing power increase and that increase in purchasing power is a direct incentive to them to purchase, right? That's that's how this works. So store value, then medium of exchange. And then once it is being used widely enough as a medium of exchange, people actually start to denominate prices in the money and think through the money. Um, so that is the path Bitcoiners anticipate Bitcoin to follow. And this is summarized nicely in a quote by the economist William Jevons. And he said that historically, excuse me, historically speaking, gold seems to have served firstly as a commodity valuable for ornamental purposes, secondly as stored wealth, thirdly as a medium of exchange, and lastly as a measure of value, unquote. So the path I just described that we anticipate for Bitcoin is very similar to this one that uh, economist William Jevons observed in, in his work. So getting back to economic thinking a little bit, you know, before Bitcoin, there had always been, at least in the recent centuries, past couple hundred years, there had been this debate between Austrian and Keynesian economics. Um, kind of an obscure intellectual debate in many ways, but obviously with, with tremendous implications. And I think Bitcoin, in a way, is it's taken that obscure intellectual or philosophical debate about economics and it's just made it a real live market test. So now we get to actually see what works and what doesn't. Um, again, a lot of these libertarian philosophers were gold bugs. Um, favored gold as the most superior monetary technology, which I agree that it was the best thing we had. But it's also failed, right? We tried gold and we ended up with these fiat currency pyramid schemes built on top of it. Um, and ultimately, those schemes use their position and the uh, revenue that comes from that position to abolish the gold standard, right? We, we've We've seen all types of price suppression schemes like the London Gold Pool. Um, for more information on this, you can check out GATA.org, G-A-T-A. It's the Gold Antitrust Action Force. Uh, they've done a lot of really kind of investigative journalism surfacing all of the uh, nonsense that's gone on in the gold markets, let's say, to, to suppress the price and, and keep fiat currencies relevant. I mean, in my mind, that's all all of that activity is consequent to just the technological limitations of gold and that it's it's physical right you have got to store it somewhere and put a token on top of it if you want high frequency high intensity exchange occurring in your economy so we had to augment around gold's portability and divisibility problems but in augmenting around them we introduced counterparty risk and this this need to trust individuals or institutions with custody of the gold and that that is antithetical to the purpose of money right which again as we said earlier is like a trust minimized medium for storing and, and transacting economic value so um 
you know, with the introduction of Bitcoin, it seems like it's definitely creating that real market test environment for this this old debate. And so far, it's, you know, it's been the best performing asset in human history. So I would say that's a strong indication that the Austrians were right about money, let's say, and it's delivered the highest risk-adjusted return of any asset class over the past decade. Typically, this is quantified by the Sharpe ratio for you finance guys out there. Um, it also outperforms even further when only the negative uh, volatility is is taken into account in that most of the volatility for Bitcoin has been to the upside, clearly, right? It's gone from zero to um, almost a trillion dollars in market cap about a year ago. So pretty fast. Um, it's been alive. Uh, these numbers are a little bit old because, again, I wrote this back in 2019, but at the time it said Bitcoin had been alive for about 3,500 days. 3,300 of those days had been profitable buying opportunities for Bitcoin. So there was only about you know less than 5% of the days of Bitcoin's existence that you could have bought it and been underwater. Uh, again, this has changed. Like We're in a bear market today. This number ebbs and flows a little bit, but when you zoom out... Um, the punchline is Bitcoin has been growing meteorically. So, again, in terms of timelessness, Bitcoin is this where gold was the best tool for the job, best tool for embodying these timeless monetary principles that Austrians have, have been espousing for, for centuries. Um, Bitcoin is like a permanent implementation of those same monetary principles. Um, and you know, Ray has a quote related to this. He says that the greatest, the greatest success you can have as the person in charge is to orchestrate others to do things well without you, unquote. And this is what I think this is essential to what Bitcoin is doing is that, um, I forget who said this, but it was like the humility of Satoshi to realize that human beings couldn't be trusted with the safeguarding of money. Right, there's there's just too much temptation to try and um, raid that honeypot or or consume the value that the custodian is guarding uh, or the custodian is in charge of uh, the guardianship for at the expense of outsiders. Um, so in that way, I think Bitcoin is setting up current and future generations to have a monetary system that does not suffer from uh, politics, frankly, right? And infighting and, and changeability and, and whatnot. It's, it's a true level playing field that cannot be perturbed by politics. And it's really, uh, you know, it takes monetary policy completely out. There's no more policy, basically, in money. Um, that term, you know, obviously policy, politics, police, uh, these terms share a root for reason is that they, they require enforcement of some kind. And Bitcoin just doesn't do that, right? There's no enforcement. Um, you don't, no one's forced to use Bitcoin. It's just this option that becomes more valuable as more force is being applied in the world, right? More inflation, more taxation, more confiscation. All of these 
enforcement actions are actually increasing the option value of an, of an opt-in uh, fair immutable monetary network like Bitcoin. Um, and so, you know, these this that's it. It's just timeless. It's timeless, immutable, fair principles, right? You just so we always talk about property on this show. Just the ability for people to keep what they earn, right? It's just a very timeless, basic principle that Bitcoin um, upholds and embodies in many ways. And it's kind of like maybe with, with physics, right? The the rules or the laws of physics, rather, they're applied fairly, and they're immutable, right? They can't be changed. Um, they're timeless, right? They're timeless in that way that the laws of physics transcend time. Uh, you know, E equals MC squared or force equals mass times acceleration. These are universal constants, right? They don't, doesn't degrade with time. Force does not, not equal mass times acceleration over time, right? It's a timeless formula. Um, and in that same way, and it's all, doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter anyone's opinion or what the current political regime says. You can't argue with math, as they say. Um, and so it is with, with Bitcoin, right? It's essentially just this timeless instantiation of, of fair monetary principles that's unaffected by political whim, arbitrariness, or any form of coercion whatsoever. Um and the rules that are upholding it are, they're fixed, they're fully transparent. Um, they provide the individual resistance to confiscation, censorship, inflation, counterfeiting. And again, the rules are transparent for all to see and opt into over time. Um, and, you know, the, the implications of this is that over time, when you have money that can't be manipulated, can't be easily confiscated, that you're going to start starving centralized government financially. Um, so I think we'll see things like these government-funded, taxpayer-funded zombie companies, right? These companies that produce perpetual losses, but they exist off of proceeds stolen through taxation. Um and this idea of the monolithic too big to fail company or institution, these things are just going to go away. They're just going to slip into irrelevance because you're, you're closing the option on the fiat currency printing press. So when you can't just print money to fund your wild ideas that don't produce any profits, right? They're just um, loss leading enterprises like many things close to the state or indeed within the state, I think all of those concepts just go away over time. Um, only those things that people demand and have adequate purchasing power to fulfill that demand will, will become manifest in, in the world. So, and as those things slip into irrelevance, you know, there's a thought here that the quality of work will just become better. Like there will be less bullshit jobs, less paper pushing, less bureaucracy, um, less financialization. So I think that this could be equivalent to 
making work more meaningful again, right? Meaningful work will actually be um, rewarded, let's say, in a Bitcoinized world where it is not so much in a fiat world. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. And that brings us to our next principle, which is the principle of meaningful work. And Ray writes on this topic, quote, we work with others to get three things, leverage to accomplish our chosen missions in bigger and better ways than we could alone, quality relationships that together make for a great community, and money that allows us to buy what we need and want for ourselves and others, unquote. So it's in my mind, you know, meaningful work, it's something we're all here endowed with rationality, certain skill sets, physical attributes, etc. Um, we have to work to, to insulate ourselves from the uncertainty of the future. That's what this whole economic process is, uh, the market process that we're engaging in. And I guess the trick to life, like to really make it enjoyable because you spend most of your life working, uh, for most of us at least, is to find work that is meaningful, right? It, It needs to give you some motivation to contend with the, the 
inexorable suffering of life. So um, obviously, you know, as we'll get into the next principle, there's also you, you seek meaning in other aspects of life like relationships. But again, work for most people tends to be the thing where we spend most of our time. And I think meaningful work, and Jimmy Song wrote a great piece on this, actually, I can't recall the title, but makes a good argument that meaningful work is centered on prudence, temperance, and justice. And I'll go through these each in turn. Prudence basically means exercising good judgment. So since fiat currency is suffering from this perpetual dilution of purchasing power, it's actually incentivizing users to spend and borrow, right? If you if your money is losing value every day, well, I either want to spend it and buy something that doesn't decline in value, um, you know, whatever, furniture even, depends on the, the rate of inflation. Or the other incentive that it creates is to borrow dollars that are strong today, but you expect to become weaker over time due to inflation and pay back weaker dollars, right? There's a, there's an arbitrage opportunity to be gained there, especially if you can borrow those dollars and then go buy something that appreciates and then pay back depreciating dollars. That, that's, an, that's an economic arbitrage. So in other words, <laughs> when your money is getting debased and it's being diluted over time, you're incentivized to spend and borrow rather than save, which is to say to be less prudent with your money. So just the the existence of uh, depreciating fiat currency actually incentivizes people to be less prudent with money. Um, and Bitcoin clearly is the reverse of all that. It has a fixed supply, so it's rewarding saving and disincentivizing spending and borrowing. Um, obviously, you wouldn't want to borrow in Bitcoin terms and try to pay it back over many years, right? Bitcoin's going up. Uh, what like an average of 200% annual growth rate, something like that, that would be very hard to pay back over time. Um, and then spending, you know, the, the classic story of the guy that bought two large pizzas with 10,000 Bitcoin um, just gives you that sense of, of how bad it can be to spend money, that fixed supply money, let's say. So again, Bitcoin does the opposite. It's actually incentivizing people to invest, save and invest rather than um, spend and borrow. And as more people adopt Bitcoin, you know, we see time preferences get shifted to become lower, more future oriented. And in this way, it's Bitcoin is encouraging people to treat the future as something to be invested into rather than borrowed against. And that is such a, a fundamental psychological reorientation uh it's it's hard to understate the importance of that um so that's prudence i want to talk about temperance now temperance has to do with taking calculated risk so since bitcoin is an unmanipulable form of money it's going to as we said earlier it's going to gradually take away this cap capacity of governments to to offer guarantees or bailouts uh, or welfare programs to spend, right? It's actually taking away some of the capacity of central government to spend because they don't 
they can't print the money, right? They need to go tax directly or borrow the money. There's much more resistance to taxing and borrowing than there is to inflation, which is can be done without any political process and is relatively invisible to people other than its consequences. So it's easy to see how that could actually soften temperance, right? In terms of taking calculated risk. Uh, you know, for instance, if you knew your job were guaranteed no matter what, no matter how you performed, no matter what you did, how hard would you actually try at the job, right? Like, if there's no risk of failure or you have no skin in the game, I mean, people tend to become reckless. Um, there's a term I picked up when I was living in Las Vegas called a free roll. And this is when uh, someone basically gives you money to gamble at the table, right? And like around the craps table or, or whatever uh, game you're playing. Um, and it's somewhat obvious that the, the recipient of the money that's that's to be deployed in the game, right? To be bet on something. Um, they tend to be a little bit more, they have a larger risk appetite <laughs> on a free roll than you do with your own money typically. And that's basically what we're talking about here. It's um, when you can just fund any program that comes to mind without having to actually work for the dollars that fund the program, uh, you tend to be more reckless, right? And that's why government spending is as reckless as it has been. And so when we look at this like long history of taxpayer funded bailouts for failed banks, uh, again, because we've broken kind of the skin in the game element here or the accountability factor, um, it's this is we've seen those banks move first, move further out along the risk curve, right? just like the person with no consequences of their job, they're, they're getting more reckless, taking bigger risk because it's not their money. It's, um, you know, all the efforts, all the efforts that they make uh, going out along that risk curve that are successful, the benefits accrue to the shareholders. But all of the, the risk that don't pan out, right, that are negative outcome, well, those get socialized onto taxpayers. So this is a, you know, against their will, obviously. So central banks are enabling the privatization of gain and the socialization of loss. So this is a classic heads I win, tells you lose situation. Um, and this, you know, this directly contradicts how it used to be done. Uh, in ancient Catalonia, for instance, bankers that went under, right, they overextended themselves, they borrowed too heavily against their balance sheet, whatever it may have been, when they became insolvent, right, these individuals that were trusted with the safekeeping of depositor funds, um, they would be beheaded in front of their banks. So those operators had a very strong disincentive to malperformance, right? They, if you, if you blow up your bank, you're going to get your head cut off. Um, when the, the risk of failure kept him honest, right? That's, that's what I'm getting at here. So when you remove the risk of failure, as we've done, uh, the beneficiaries of government guarantees, they don't have skin in the game anymore. So therefore they're going to be intemperate in their risk taking, right? It, 
there's no risk of failure. You're always just going to print more money and paper over the thing. So, you know, there's another way of saying that a Mises point that when revenues are generated without consent, right? When, when revenue is generated by theft, that it's much easier to spend that money foolishly than if you had to work and obtain the money yourself, right? You're going to be much more temperate with your spending when you've worked to acquire it versus when you just won the lottery or robbed someone or whatever. It's very obvious on an individual level. So uh, I think it's understanding it in that way makes it pretty intuitive at the collective level as well that we need risk of failure for capitalism to work. Otherwise, you incentivize this reckless spending and behavior that we see in, in fiat world today. Um, so again, I th- and all right, so that was temperance. Um, now let's talk about justice. You know, justice means being fair or reasonable. Uh, and more precisely, I think it means people getting what they deserve. Right, this is a very basic instinct that we have. Um, we like to see people getting what they deserve, whether that's people, you know, good people having good outcomes or bad people having bad outcomes. There's something very instinctual about this that humans desire. Right, we desire to see justice done. Um, and when an action is taken that can benefit one group or one cohort disproportionately or even at the expense of another group, right? So there's some asymmetry where one group is preying upon another one. Um, We could say that that's unjust, right? Someone's not getting what they deserve effectively. Um, And again, it's it's about like symmetry, right? There should be some symmetry of, of action and outcome. Um, and I think in the sphere of economics and money, like we could probably distill this all the way down to say, justice is people keeping what they earn. So, um, you know, this is the, the value of strong property. It's like whatever you expend your blood, sweat, and tears to create something of value in the world, you get to keep that. And you can use that, consume that, save that, trade that with other people. And as so long as we all honor that set of rule or that core rule for the game, people keep what they earn, then capitalism works, innovation works, wealth creation works, and we build civilization in that way. Um, But inflating money supplies obviously, as you probably (laughs) could guess by this point, is an unjust action because there's an asymmetry, right? There's an asymmetry inherent into the legal monopoly itself of central banking. This asymmetry is enriching the politically favored few near the, the fiat currency spigot, and it's coming at the expense of those furthest away from it. So this is a, a, a mechanism for centralizing wealth and power and externalizing loss, right? You're actually, you're, you're widening the gap between rich and poor and um, all because inflation is this asymmetric, invisible, insidious, unjust thing. 
and it's interventionism, you know, government interventionism of this kind and all kinds, really, that are distorting the information of market pricing. So it makes fair dealings much more difficult. Um, you know, another way to say this is like in a free market where there's only honest money, right? A Bitcoinized world where you can't print money, um, you can't easily tax it, can't easily steal it. Um, only really productive or industrious people that actually add value to the world and receive recognition for that value and compensation for that value through consensual trade with other people, um, those people are going to be rewarded in a, a world run on Bitcoin or honest money. But in an unfree market world, fiat currency, dishonest money world, uh, really people that are good at politics, right? The, the, the people that are good at being duplicitous or engaging in political intrigue, uh, people with less scruples, they are able to be rewarded disproportionately. Like so long as they can sell a narrative to the public that justifies the the scheme of, of systemic property violation, then they can just keep uh, harvesting the economic surplus of consensual market actors for themselves. Um, and you know, I've argued here a lot. I think that, so you could say like the extent to which we're violating private property by fiat currency inflation, it's the extent to which we're rewarding non-productive patterns of action. So obviously people, the way I try to summarize this is people are going to do whatever is profitable. So to the extent that violating property is profitable, people are going to do that. And if you get cohorts of people engaged in that activity, it starts to actually change them, right? They change their personality and demeanor and skill set, everything. They, they become um, more adept at politics than they do production, let's say. And so I think this is how, and something I'm deeply fascinated with, is it's actually how debasing currency debases our moral composition. That when you reward non-productive patterns of action, you're pulling people out of productive patterns of action and pushing them down this political pathway. And over time, these people that have gone the political route forget how to be productive. They don't have marketable skills. You're draining the, the talent pool over here. And eventually, when that ratio gets too high, right, you get too many administrators or politicians per unit of productive entrepreneur, that society gets really out of balance and things come unglued. So um, all of this, like, again, it's like the money is at the core of all this rottenness. It's a legally enforced injustice at the end of the day. Central banking is a legally enforced injustice. So if you really just take that sentence to mind and unpack it for a while, um, I think you'll see how, how dark it is. So, and this gets expressed in a lot of ways, but another one that we talk about a lot is, is rent-seeking business models. Um, you've seen this, especially since 1971, this demographic shift from productive to non-productive roles, from value additive to value subtractive 
positions in society being rewarded. Um, this is evidenced by like currently more people, new graduates want to go into banking and finance that want to go then want to go into engineering, right? There's more money to be made on Wall Street than there is in engineering disciplines. Uh, we've also seen this academic credentialing in medicine and finance. Um, there's uh, been a lot, there's been an explosion actually in the healthcare profession of administrators. The ratio of administrators to healthcare providers has absolutely, absolutely exploded to the upside. So you've got a lot more of these middlemen basically in these industries where, where fiat currency um, has been very operative, let's say. And, you know, again, if you're in a purely free market, compensation tends to be reflective of a role's usefulness to society. But when you have this weird form of monetary socialism, this unfree market of fiat currency, the financial incentives to get close to the currency spigot are just greater, right? It's just, I'm going to get richer playing this game of political intrigue, trying to get my business close to the of, you know, free cheap loans or bailout or a recipient of some government grant or program. I can make more money doing that than I can actually going into the marketplace, bringing a product or service to market that people actually need that actually advances productivity. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, Money's just a means to an end. Uh, and Ray has a good quote about this. He says, quote, remember that the only purpose of money is to get what you want. So think hard about what you value and put it above money, unquote. So it's not money that makes work meaningful, really. Like it's it might be the motivation, but to really get into a world of meaningful work, what we need is alignment of our individual interest and skill sets with what the community actually needs, right? You're trying to find that alignment. Like, what am I good at? What do I like to do? What does the world need? When you can find that, that alignment, um, that is what makes the work meaningful, right? And the money is just kind of the, um, the liquidity or the the oil in that engine that makes it operate well um but clearly it's a very powerful material incentive and it's under under written a lot of these uh changes and in institutions we've seen and the evolution of, of money itself really is that pursuit of material interest so in this way you know like the type of money a society runs on it's clearly of paramount importance um, nothing about fiat currency is trustworthy, right? The utility, you don't even know, you don't know that the dollars in your bank account are going to be available tomorrow, even like the bank can turn them off at any time. It's a debtor creditor relationship. Uh, obviously the supply of fiat currency cannot be trusted. It's printed ad infinitum. Um, and along with that, it's purchasing power of value is, is clearly not trustworthy. And if money is this net network of trust and through which we're facilitating all of our commercial relationships, if you have lack of trust integrated into what's intended to be a network of trust, 
Um, it's somewhat obvious, maybe the, the trust relationships among people don't, they suffer, right? Like society suffers. It's, I can't trust the money, which means I can't trust the people functional money would allow me to otherwise trust, right? I can go to the store and just pay someone for bread, but if the money doesn't work, how can I, how can I exchange for bread in any, uh, trustworthy fashion, right? It just, it collapses social cooperation. Um, and so if we're going to try to get what we want, right? And that's what Ray's big on that. Obviously it's, it's core to meaningful work. We need these really reliable protocols, right? We need a rule of law, right? When someone steps out of line and there's a dispute, we need a way to handle it nonviolently. We need private property rights, people keeping what they earn makes sense. And you know, part and parcel to both of those, you just need a money that can't be manipulated. Because really, when you manipulate money, you are both violating the rule of law and private property rights. Right? You're stealing someone's stuff uh, in a way that the, the rule of law has no recourse to. The, the central bank exists above the law, if you will. So as central banks keep confiscating and redistributing wealth created by the work of others, they're they're compromising these cornerstones of capitalism, the rule of law, private property rights, honest money. You're, you're, you're eroding the things that we built all this, uh, the civilization on top of, right? This, we take it for granted that we can just go into the world and like pretty much trust strangers. We can just exchange money and get goods and services and everyone's coordinating their actions in a way that, that, adds to the productive capacity of the whole. I mean, we take all that for granted, but it's built on these very important cornerstones that central banking is undermining. Um, so if I haven't overemphasized it enough, it's really bad. Money is critical to all of this because money, as we've said earlier, is basically just speech. You know, um, you need modes of expression that are made freely are necessary for society to function properly, right? Uh, another way, what did Rothbard say? To be moral and act must be free. So if we're going to have uh, a moral society, then we need a consensual society. And to have that, you have to remove these elements of, of coercion. And, um, you know, money is speech. We've called money the language of value. Um, ultimately, it's that this is true of the word itself, the logos, as it is true of money, right? That is a tool that's letting us handle exchange ratios in a, in a more a more simplified form that these are their communication protocols, right? That's essentially what we're describing here. It's software, software for communication, speech, right? English is software for communication, money. It's like a software that's integrated into reality uh, through proof of work. Like that's, that's what gold was, that's what Bitcoin is. And what are these doing is they're enabling the sovereignty of the individual, right? To express themselves freely in the world. Uh, you know, again, this is the bedrock of Western civilization. This is reflected in the freedom of speech, First Amendment of the United States, Second Amendment of the United States, the right to bear arms. Um, you know, 
these are we're trying to insulate the individual from the tyranny of the collective that's kind of the point of all these things and when we inhibit or censor modes of expression right whether we distort speech or violate money um which are together responsible for basically all human coordination and communication, right? Take out speech and money. How much are people going to communicate and coordinate? Not much. Um, that when you inhibit either one of those, you're basically contradicting our most basic liberty, right? These are human rights, right? Human rights, the, the rights we enjoy to freely express ourselves. So, there's just basically no, there's just zero justification for a system that suppresses either verbal or financial expression. You're just breaking down the communication fabric of this complex system we call the economy. And it comes, even though it may come at short term gain to some, right, to insiders, central bank shareholders, it is dramatically undermining the potential of the collective. Like it's, it's a self-destructive pattern when viewed from the perspective of humanity and to the extent that we can organize ourselves within a truly free market capitalist environment where everyone respects the private property the private bound of person and property of others um, we are incentivizing basic morality right don't kill don't steal don't harm my person don't take my property so this again we're achieving that alignment um, between what in this case, what the collective needs and what the rules should be. And so I think in this way, Bitcoin is just something that can help advance our civilization to new levels, dramatically improving the quality of human relations. Um, and quality relationships, almost by definition, are more meaningful, which takes us to our next principle, which is the principle of meaningful relationships.